you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today with Leslie Ford, who is the founder of Mom's Hierarchy of Needs and Allies at Work. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. So great to have you. Now, before I jump in, let me first tell you about Leslie. Leslie Ford is the founder of the Mom's Hierarchy of Needs framework that surfaces the link between self-care, well-being, and growth. Leslie has used research to inform growth and innovation strategy for over 20 years. She's held brand management, product marketing, and business development roles in consumer technology and products, market research, media, and publishing companies. In the last year during the pandemic, she launched the Allies at Work program to help employers retain working parents and create inclusive workplaces where caregivers can thrive. Leslie's thought leadership and writing about parenting, motherhood, and equity has appeared in the Washington Post, Slate, Parents Magazine, and her website, Mom's Hierarchy of Needs, among other publications. Now, we'll talk about the important work you are doing with Mom's Hierarchy of Needs and Allies at Work, Leslie. But first, I'd love to hear about your own career journey and ultimately what brought you to this work. Absolutely. I'm happy to share the story. So, you know, I early on in my life, I was one of those kids who kind of knew what I wanted to do. Um, And I knew what I wanted to do at any given time. And and it did shift and change a little bit. But I believe I was in, I was in grade school by the time I kind of landed on wanting to have a career in either international law or international marketing. Um, And after, it was probably through my teen years, I started, you know, just talking to more people um, I, I started working when I was like 14 years old. Um, so I just had more exposure to like how things were sold, how things came to market. It became interesting to me. And so I kind of picked that path early. And I had this very, in my head at the time, this very linear career path planned out. It was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to just be really, you know, honest and work really hard and um, and show up for work in the best way possible. And then I will have this nice, stable, easy, comfortable life um, that kind of allows me to do all the things that I want to be able to do personally. So that was the plan. Um, things shifted. Uh, I mean, to some degree that worked for a while. I really went through kind of my career in a pretty linear fashion. 
Um, although I shifted a little bit from marketing into all these other areas that kind of support like brand health and um, product distribution and strategy, which turned out to be a strength of mine, really understanding like strategically what to do uh, to get a product to market. And so I found all these like subspecialties that I got really interested in. And over time, you know, I became like a senior executive and in different roles at these companies. Um, right before, <laughs> right before the pandemic, I was laid off from my full-time job. So until last year, Mom's Hierarchy of Needs was a passion project. And when I started it as a passion project, I think there were two reasons. One, I had completely burned out after my second child was born. I crashed in such a severe way that I started doubting myself, doubting my own capacity, you know, questioning how other mothers were making work and ambition and life fit together. And so that kind of started me on this journey of research and discovery. Um, and then the other reason was that, you know, after I kind of stumbled upon the idea, and I'm happy to share that story, I realized that, you know, I had kind of stopped being creative. I had become so seasoned in the work that I did that I was great, you know, great at strategy and working with clients and kind of developing myself as a corporate kind of person, but I wasn't doing any, I wasn't doing anything vulnerable anymore. You know, I began in, as a writer in my childhood, like writing poetry. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, you know, I'm losing something by not nurturing this creative side of my personality. And I wanted to start writing again. I wanted to start being outside of my comfort zone again and just building some reconnection to my identity. So those were the two reasons that I started the work. Wow. So interesting. And <clears throat> you talked about burnout and we were starting to talk about that before we started the interview. What were the signals for you that you were burnt out? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, there were so many. And what's interesting is that while you are burning out, you don't necessarily see the signals. <laughs> I was exhausted and, you know, I had gone back to work thinking that I was going to be returning to the same job. And this is something that happens to a lot of women, like conditions changed in the organization from the time that I was pregnant to the time that I came back. And I had taken on a pretty large promotion at the time that I was pregnant. I went from managing one department to two departments. I didn't have a lot of ramp up time with my new team. And when I kind of, you know, within two weeks, actually, before I was supposed to come back, my manager at the time called and said, you know what, that most senior rock star person on your team, she is going to be going into another division. And by the way, we can't backfill her. And oh, by the way, those open recs that we had for you, now we're trying to demonstrate profitability so we can't close them. Uh, we can't fill them. We're going to have to close them. And within a few months of that, I had a few different people for completely different reasons go out on FMLA leave, and it was all unplanned. So I was trying to 
you know, return to the job and ease myself back in as somebody was sleeping in one hour increments with a newborn and managing life with a toddler. But I was short staffed. My company's strategy had changed. And the job was requiring me to bring like my clearest, most like strategic, insightful self when I was hollowed out. I, you know, I remember driving to the office and it was almost an hour away. And there were so many days where I just didn't remember getting there. I had no idea how I got there. Um, I realized this was maybe at the beginning when I started to realize that something was wrong. I would get all the way to the office and like run, 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 like race in there to kind of get in there and realize that I'd left the breast pump part of it at home, like the outlet for it or the breast pump itself. And I would have to drive all the way back. And people who didn't know me very well would ask me how I was doing with concern, like telling me that I didn't look very well. Um, and people had never done that before. Someone had actually recommended some services like, you know, maybe you should consider a night nurse to help you get some sleep, right? And so all of those things were kind of culminating and snowballing in the background. But instead of like catching those signals and paying attention to what was going on in my body and paying attention to what other people were telling me, I just thought, oh my gosh, I have this huge problem. I'll just work harder, right? Like, let me just work harder. And I'd be like typing away at the keyboard. It would be one, two, three in the morning. I'd try to like put the pillow up next to the co-sleeper so I wouldn't wake the baby. And of course it didn't work, but I was conditioned to believe that the harder I worked, that would be the answer to any problem that I faced professionally. I also didn't ask for help, um, not in a way that was meaningful um, and not until the end. And I realize now in hindsight how that's also part of the conditioning, right? Like we're kind of taught that as you get into leadership, you're the one who should have all the answers. You're the one who should bring solutions, not problems. And that by asking for help, it makes you more vulnerable. And when you come back to work after a leave, especially a leave for having a child, you really feel vulnerable, right? You feel like you want to kind of re-engage re with who you are. You want to get your mojo back. You know, you want all these things to happen. And I, I really crashed and realized that the work I was doing and the job that I once loved was completely unsustainable. So I did a big downshift to accommodate for that. Wow. It's so important what you're saying, especially I want to just punctuate this idea of like so many of us think, and I'm going to say, including myself at times, that like the answer lies in just working harder. And it can be a really dangerous place to be. And I can also really imagine for, you know, moms going back into the workforce, just like you said, not only did you want to get your mojo back, but there is this pressure a little bit to like reestablish yourself, you know, show that you still got it. And so these pressures come along. So you said, you know, it was both this, I, this notion or the fact that you had had rather burnout, this calling to bring forward your creative self that, brought you to founding Mom's Hierarchy of Needs. And you noted that creating that model and really visualizing it was powerful for you. So can you tell us more about how the model came to be and what it made it 
what made it so powerful for you and for others? Absolutely. Well, it was, it took me almost, almost two and a half years to recover from burnout. So fast forward, I downshifted. I took a job in a much larger company. Instead of running two large teams, I was, I was managing one direct report and I negotiated a four day work week. So I had this breathing space suddenly and a founder of a mental health company had reached out to me. He wanted some advisory help with go-to-market strategy. And he's a dad. And we were talking about stress, right? Because the whole focus of the company was around mental health. And that actually started a lot of my kind of professional research into the mental health space. But he said, you know, why are moms so stressed? And I said, well... <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> like, <laughs> I said, well, you know, there's, it just rolled out, you know, just rolled out. It was like, well, let me tell you that, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then there's mom's hierarchy of needs. And just like, as soon as I said it, I felt it, something about it clicked. And I just got so excited about the idea of it. I'm like, what would it look like? Would my mom's hierarchy of needs look like someone else's? And I just drew it like on a little piece of paper. And that night I turned it into a PowerPoint. And because I began my career in research, I'm, I was a market researcher for a long time. I actually worked my way, even pre-resume, I worked my way through high school and college as a market researcher. So research was in my roots. It's how I solved problems. And it was, a, you know, I put out a simple survey and within, you know, it was, I think maybe within a couple of weeks, over 150 moms had responded. And helped me kind of refine it to what it looks like now. And I'll describe it. So like Maslow's hierarchy, like everything at the bottom are the foundational priorities. Like in Maslow's, it's, you know, food, <laughs> shelter, you know, the basics. And in the mom's hierarchy of needs framework, it's our children's well-being, their health, their milestones. And then you get to the next level. It's their activities and their education and their development. And then the level after that is the household. And, you know, for, it's still true, uh, unfortunately, but women do take on a much larger share in most families of all things household. And even if they are sharing the actual work, they are owning all of the cognitive planning and um, orchestration that has to happen to make everything come together. So it's the household role. Then you get to the next level, which is our professional roles and work. And way up at the tippy tippy top, right? It's like looking up at Mount Everest. That's where everything that we would do for our mental, physical, and emotional health, um, you know, lie. And so for me, that's self-care, which in my world includes sleep and movement and managing stress. It is not about spa days and manicures. It includes healthy relationships with other adults. And yes, that includes your partner if you're partnered. And it includes learning and growth and development and fun. And I wasn't, I, like I couldn't understand why I wasn't making time for any of those things anymore. And why most mothers didn't until I drew it. And then when I drew it, I was like, oh, well, here's the problem, right? I'm trying to do the impossible. Everything at the bottom is never done. And we've always conditioned ourselves, especially pre-kids, you think, well, I'll, you know, go for that run or sign up for that PhD program or call that friend or go see that movie or go out to dinner, whatever it is after everything's done. 
So if you live in the land of never done, which is true, right, for, for most people in general in our society, and it's particularly true if you have caregiving responsibilities, suddenly, like, whatever that little sliver of discretionary time was that you used to have, like, it's gone. If you have a, if you have a baby or a toddler or, or if you have kids of a certain age or if your kids lack independence or even if you're caring for, like, an elder or a senior, you know, you don't have discretionary time anymore. <laughs> and so you realize that, at least what I realized, was that I had to make the time. It would not just happen. And as, as lovely as my husband is, um, and as lovely as the people in my lives are, my kids are, like, no one's going to say, you know what? You look tired. Sit down. Relax. Why don't we do these 50 things that you do, <laughs> right? No one's going to say that to you. Um, so I got really ruthless about carving out space and time for those things at the top and understanding over time when I started to feel in my body improvement and I started to return to having those like innovative, sparky ideas and the great concepts would just come to me on a run or come to me on a walk. Then I realized that, oh, this is really at the heart of, you know, unlocking the kind of life that I want to live. And it's like, I care deeply about my career and I care deeply about my kids and my family and my friends and my parents. But if I just spend all my time down at the bottom of the pyramid, it's just not sustainable. So many powerful things in that. And I'm curious, you know, we were talking before about there's a lot of people that will say that working hard is linked to successful outcomes, right? Or having a successful career. And we just said, you know, we, we both kind of can sometimes subscribe to, oh, if I'm not getting it all done, I'll just work harder. But we were also sharing and what you're bringing up is, is this importance of, taking care of oneself or regenerating and making sure that you're regenerating your energy. And you said, you know, there are a couple of things that you noted that you did. One is you're like, I downshifted my career, right? I negotiated a four day work week. I created breathing space, which I think is so critical and important. And as you're saying, like that gave you the space to actually open up and get that creativity back and have these powerful ideas that are coming to you. And we, you said, you know, we talk about self-care, but I almost wonder if that word just is so tinged, you know, with misunderstanding and it still sounds because of that term it sounds self-indulgent as opposed to critical right it's it's actually self-critical care in <laughs> order to keep you sustaining right mm -hmm. and you talked about being ruthless about things at the top and i wonder if you have any tips for people on how to think about that or because some of these things that you did they, they took you making those choices to craft that. And we're going to, I'd love to talk, we're going to move into kind of like, what do companies need to be thinking about, right? So that this isn't all just on the individual. But I also believe that we, we all do have some amount of personal responsibility and it takes, you know, frankly, effort and being ruthless to make this happen for oneself. And it really isn't easy, but in your journey, Leslie, do you have any thoughts on 
and tips based on what you did for yourself on if people are kind of standing at this precipice and, you know, it's so critical right now, but what are some thoughts you might have or tips to kind of be ruthless about finding this time for those things at the top of the pyramid? Oh, it's, yeah, I have so many thoughts around that because it, it was very iterative too. Like I had to figure out what would work and what I could do. Um, I think perhaps the first thing is just understanding a little bit also about how our conditioning works in our society. So if you think about the hierarchy that I just described, like all those things at the top, to your point about self-care and the meaning of the word, and the meaning of that term becoming almost like something that people are ashamed to do, right? Because if you look at your like, look at your Facebook feed or look at your Instagram feed, right? People are everything at the bottom. If you're like with your kids and taking care of your house, or back when we used to travel, if you're out on a business trip, whatever it was, like then everyone's like kind of yes, you know, giving you the high fives for doing all that stuff at the bottom, but you know, how many people do you see, and by people, I mean women people, uh, taking time for those things at the top? Not much, right? Like people don't say, oh, yeah, I decided before, (laughs) you know, before my kids got up or before even I was tending to my job, right? I took an hour to go running or to meditate or to journal or any of the, people don't talk about that because we're shamed for doing those things at the top. And we're celebrated for doing those things at the bottom. And so once you understand that, and that it's warped, (laughs) you give yourself a different level of permission to regenerate and to realize that everything else in your life works better if your energy is intact. And if your spirit and soul and what kind of makes you you, right, is intact. So with that said, For me, like I really started to look at where, you know, where I have space in the day. I know there's so much about morning routines, but I actually do believe that if you think of the anchors to your day, like your your like morning and what happens at the start of your day and what happens at the end of the day, um, that's a good place to start. Um, Especially, and it depends on your childcare situation. If you have kids um, or your care situation, if you might be caring for parents, you know, you have not every lever can be pulled depending on what your responsibilities are. But I realized, okay, let me work with this time before my kids are asleep, awake um, as much as I can. And let me carve out some time, which I now do. My kids are school age now, right? My little one is in Zoom kindergarten. So once they're on their school Zooms, and I, then it's like I also make some space before I start meetings. I've become very intentional and, and I've read so many great books and resources about this, about like batching your messages and batching checking social media and not filling your brain with all of the things that other people want you to do first thing. And that's huge. So I try never to schedule meetings before 10 or 11. Um, I try not to check email or social media before 10. I leave that space as my creative time. So after I go running, after I journal, after I meditate, I make sure that I get at least one really important thing done before 10 a.m. This also requires going to bed earlier, right? Which is also hard. And during the pandemic, I completely backslid. I started like 
just freaking out and staying up late, right? Like everybody else. So I've had to gradually work my way back to being able to not go to bed really late and wake up really early. But by doing that, I feel like I've done something for myself before 10 a.m. Like I've taken care of my like mental health. I've taken care of my physical health and I've done something meaningful in my business or in my work. And it's usually writing because I'm a writer and a researcher and that's like, it's greedy. It requires a ton of brain space to do that work. So I will start writing before I jump into things like email or proposals for clients or dealing with invoicing or any of those other types of things. So I would encourage people to think about that um, and your nighttime routine. And again, oh, sorry, one other really important point. If you are a caregiver, then have a plan B, C, and D. Because there are mornings where I'm like, I go rushing out of my room. My husband's asleep. The kids are asleep. I'm like, oh, I have all this time. It's like, I'm going to have an hour and a half before I have to get breakfast ready for them. And I'm so excited. And literally like five minutes later, my little one will come out. Hi, mommy. (laughs) Right. Or other, you know, people will relate to this, like back when we were all leaving the house and doing things outside of the house, you know, I'd be like ready to rush out the door. And then it's like, someone will throw up or something. Right. It's like, so your plan can change at any moment. And so I had a plan B time, like, okay, if I can't go running in the morning, I'm going to go running during lunch. Um, And this is back when I was like working downtown. And so my office was like 45 minutes away and, but I would have a backup plan and then, okay, if I can't go running at lunch, then I'm going to go running like late in the day before I have to like relieve my nanny and take care of the kids. Right. Or then if worst case if that fails, then I would go out like at night and go running before bed. So I just had like a set of options so that I didn't feel pressure for everything to go perfectly because it never does. I think that I'm glad you went back to that. I think that's a really important point. And having these backup plans, like you're saying, is just, it takes some pressure off, right? Exactly. And, yeah. you know, in the pandemic, I encourage people, like, I like running because it actually relieves stress for me. Um, you know, it's great exercise too, but I really did it more for like mental health than I did for physical health. But it, you know, it doesn't have to be something like that. It doesn't have to be something big. Like I tell people, especially right now, like if you can close your bathroom door and splash some water on your face or take five minutes (laughs) to give yourself some deep breathing. And yes, you might have to lock yourself in your car or in your bathroom or, you know, whatever you have to do, like take that time to breathe before your next meeting like anything and doing it on a regular basis and starting small, like all of those things matter. And you'll eventually, like it will turn the tide and the better you take care of yourself, the more you will want to take care of yourself and you will be happier and less resentful of your situation at home, of your family, of your employer, you know, all of those other forces that are like pulling at you all day long and asking for things from you all day long. Yeah. Another really important point, which is like, it doesn't have to be these long or big things, like finding these small moments to really pause is really important. So, you know, during the pandemic, you started to speak more about caregivers and not just moms, but of course, moms are caregivers. So when you think about caregivers, how do you define that? And what is your vision of the future of work uh, look like with caregivers at the center? It's a great question. 
So I began this research, right, looking at the, these intersections between stress, self-care, and growth for mothers. And, and I'm, you know, of course, because that's my personal experience, but realizing that by starting with the audience that are the least represented in leadership, have the largest wage gap, have the least amount of discretionary time, that if you, if you target the community that is struggling the most. Um, I worked in educational publishing for a while and worked with kids' products. And there was this theory in education, like, you know, if you plan for the child that has the you know greatest socioeconomic difficulties, the most food insecure, the greatest learning differences, and you teach that kid to learn, then education's better for everybody. And I believe this is true about work. Like if you if you can make work work for moms, then the experience of work is also great for like a 25-year-old guy who wants to surf and have a dog, right? <laughs> it's like people don't want to be trapped online or in physical offices from the hours of nine to five anymore or from the hours of eight to six or whatever it is, right? No one wants to be held captive as if they are punching a time clock. And if they are punching a time clock in a manufacturing plant, they probably want some flexibility too, right? So this idea that work is about FaceTime and being available and being always on, which frankly, that broke about 10 or 15 years ago because all of us were also working at night and on the weekends and working eventually working around the clock. So for anyone with a caregiving responsibility, caring for children, caring for a special needs adult, caring for their aging parents, um, caring for a grandparent or an elderly loved one, you know, it's like it's been this invisible thing in our society because it's often unpaid or underpaid work. Then it just doesn't get valued or recognized, even though it's like an integral part of how society runs, right? You cannot, you cannot advance in your career without care for your kids or care for your parents. And everybody is either going to be a caregiver or need to be cared for at some point in their lives, right? It's part of the human condition, yet work wasn't really structured to accommodate it. So I've like focused this research on the employer side of what I do, the allies at work side of what I do, on helping organizations understand like flexibility psychological safety. Currently, and I think, frankly, this was a problem before, and it will, it will be an ongoing need, like have a proactive plan around childcare and elder care for people. Because guess what? If you're not going to pay for it cleanly and upfront on your P&L, you're going to pay for it in absenteeism. You're going to pay for it in lost productivity. You're going to pay for it and employees who walk out the door and go someplace more flexible that allows them to accommodate work and life. Um, and mental health care is the other one. Organizations have also, I think, kept that in the shadows for so long, but people need, people have different styles. We talked about this in the beginning. People have different, like, like there are people who are extroverts and really happy to be around people all day long. There are people who are completely drained by that. There are people who work really well um, early in the day and in the mornings. There are people who are like night owls. And for organizations to build flexible structures and value people so that they can get the work done in a way that's successful for them 
and they can accommodate having a life, whether that's childcare, elder care, whether that's caring for a dog, whether that's surfing in the middle of the day, whether that's being able to take a nap so they can you know, restore their energy, all the things that we need as humans and still be able to succeed in leadership, still be able to thrive in careers that are rewarding and engaging. So this is such an important and critical part of this next phase of work. And as you're working with companies with your Allies at Work program and you know, like you said, you're you're both leveraging your research that you've been doing as well as you're in conversation with employers coming out of this pandemic, and we're not out of it yet, right? And we're, we're, we really are, you know, entering a, a new state that no one really knows how it's going to take shape, even though there's a lot of forecasting being done. Are there some things that you're hearing that give you some level of encouragement about where we're headed? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, I decided to rewatch the movie Nine to Five with Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. Right. And it was made in 1980, 40 years ago. And I was amazed to see that at the end of the film, they take over and they're championing on-site daycare, they have flexible work arrangements, there's job share, there's equal pay. It's been 40 years, like what happened? And it seemed like we started to get some progress and then it just fizzled. And so my hope is that we will see the tide start to shift coming out of the pandemic. What are you hearing in our, are there any bright spots or things that are giving you some hope? And I mean, you're one of those bright spots, Leslie, in the work that you're doing. So I'm so grateful for what you're doing, but what are you hearing from employers right now? Oh, you know, I, I'm with you. And that movie, ah, oh, I remember that movie and you're right. I've forgotten about that happy ending. And the fact that like all the, like the formula was there right? And yet it's taken all this time to catch up to it. I'm also really encouraged by what I'm hearing because I have employers that frankly, they're hiring me, right? They're paying me to come in and talk to their people about well-being, to support parents and caregivers around flexibility, to help them with research. And I'll run my research studies across everybody in the organization. In some cases, like they'll say, hey, we want everyone to do self-care, including our non-caregivers, including our single employees. Like, let, let's, like, let's figure out how to change the culture to support it. So I see receptivity. Um, I also see an awareness that, frankly, caregiving is not, uh, is, not, is not and should not be gendered. That in the workplace, absolutely dads should have paternity leave, um, just like moms have maternity leave. In the workplace, dads have caregiving responsibilities at home and responsibilities at home, not just moms, because ultimately that will free women. Like women are like locked into this gendered set of duties that are impossible to manage or nearly impossible to manage without a lot of self-sacrifice in their careers. And if we, and if in the workplace, male leaders treat it differently and treat their male direct reports differently and allow flexibility for male and female employees, like that starts to change things. And I'm beginning to see that. I'm also beginning to see just conversations about mental health where in the past there would have never been conversations. Leaders being vulnerable. Like I have one client where 
you know, the CEO is lovely. Like the whole team there is lovely. CEO is a man. I've worked with him a lot. I've worked with them for like eight months. And, you know, like they had a lot of like perfectionism in the culture, like what kept showing up in their survey results were that people were just afraid to make mistakes. And that leads to a lot of like burnout, right? Because people like everyone wants to be excellent at everything, right? Everyone wants to be an amazing worker and an amazing daughter to their aging parents and an amazing caregiver to their kids and an amazing neighbor and community member, right? No one wants to be bad at anything. So in the workplace, people were just like staying up all hours. Like if they get an email from their boss, even if it's nine o'clock at, or at night and they're exhausted, if they saw the email, they felt compelled to respond. Or if they were given a project, they felt compelled to do it right away, even if it didn't need to be done right away. So I just started saying, hey, make these things transparent. Like, first of all, you don't need to send an email at nine o'clock at night. You can schedule send. If you're working at nine, that's great. But have it go the next morning during business hours. People feel this pressure. What I see in my study, you know, people are terrified of losing their jobs in a recession. Um, people are terrified of losing the, you know, decades that they've put into developing their careers through this pandemic. So I encourage leaders and managers to just dial back on the synchronous communication, dial back on the number of meetings, stop sending people things off hours. There's no need to do that. And does everything need a meeting? Nope, probably not. So rethink when you actually need to meet with people, give people large chunks of time that are meeting-free zones because everyone wants to be able to get some deep work done. And if it's someone's a caregiver, particularly for parents, um, they're doing all that deep work in the wee hours of the night and the morning and before their kids wake up. And they are exhausted by that. And no one does good work under those conditions for very long. So those are the types of things that I'm seeing and also where I'm recommending that the workplace needs to change to accommodate a, just a, some breathing room so that people can perform and not do it at the expense of their mental and physical health. I love that. And I'm so grateful to hear, thankful to hear, I should say, that there is some movement and that you're hearing some changes. And I appreciate that you threw in some great tips there for people because, um, you know, I, I there's so much I could talk to you about, Leslie, and we're just about out of time. So I would love to just ask you this final question, which is, what's a final piece of advice you leave our listeners with? Find something that allows you to take some space for yourself uh, every day. And it doesn't have to be at the same time of day and it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. But burnout is a big issue right now. Um, and I see it in my research study. I now have over 2000 parents who've participated, 97% um, of whom are women. So <laughs> I can look, tell you from the lens of the moms that I'm hearing from and even from the dads, like people aren't doing well. And it's just working and being always on is not manageable. And as we discussed earlier, right, burnout and success are not positively correlated. The people who are doing the great, fabulous, innovative things in the world, um, that doesn't come from, being on, from running on empty. And I've learned it personally, and I've seen it now uh, professionally. So take some space for yourself. And then if you are feeling like you don't have any boundaries at work, set a boundary. 
If you don't feel psychologically safe to set a boundary, band together with other people and collectively try to set a boundary and just say, hey, we're finding that <laughs> we don't have time to get, you know, or like I, my favorite one, and I had a colleague who did this brilliantly for years. It was like, someone gives you a new project and you say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. I, I've always wanted to do this. Oh, but last week you told me project B was really important. But this week you're giving me project A and I love the idea of project A, but oh, project B is going to suffer if I start working on project A. Should I push back project A or should we start project B in two months? Or, you know, have that discussion um, centered in like organizational need so that people realize the trade-offs that you have to make to deliver great work and to deliver great work in a way that's sustainable to your own health. Um, so those are the tips. I have so many, but those are a couple. I know. Well, it's so wonderful. And you do offer so many tips and so much value. Where can people find you to get in touch? Oh, well, definitely momshierarchyofneeds.com. And that's where I do a lot of the writing and sharing of this research. But I'm also in all the social places. So, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Mom's Hierarchy of Needs. Um, I'm all those places. So I, wonderful. I, yes. Yeah. I will capture all of that in the show notes so that people can find you and find the important work that you're doing and if they want to get in touch and work with you. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you again, Leslie. It's really been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate being invited. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.